Hey, I'm excited to get right into the Word with you. As we're launching into the summertime, I just felt really compelled to, to, to really change directions from something else I had planned and to spend a couple weeks diving into a topic and maybe even a bit of a frustration that I've been feeling in my own life and in our culture. And, you know, it's not news to any of you that our world and God's word are at odds with each other, amen? It's the reality that we live in today, and, and, and there's a continual affront against the authority of God's word in our culture, and, and there seems to be more and more a continual twisting of the word of God, even in the church culture. And so I just wanted to take a couple weeks to focus in on this thought in this series called Different. And last week, I started the series by talking about the authority of God's word, want to let you know what kind of church you walk into this morning. We believe in the authority of Scripture. All of it. Genesis to Revelation. I even believe the maps. (laughs) We believe in all of it. And there's a verse that we used last week to, I don't think the maps are inspired, by the way, in case some of y'all were like... Last week, we launched with a a verse out of 2 Timothy, and I just want to put this on the screen again as a a launch pad for where we're headed today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. This was Paul's conviction. It's ours. He said, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe this is what the word of God is, And this is what the word of God does. It is God breathed. It's not just a a word that was inspired, but we believe as Hebrews 4.12 says, it's living and active. The, The breath of God is on the pages of this word and this is what it does. It equips us for every good work. Aren't you thankful that God left the instruction manual? Amen. I know next week's Father's Day and I know a lot of guys are, you know, you're, you have this like innate thing against using instructions. Like you take your man card away, but how about we make an exception when it comes to this one, okay? We need the instructions, right? When I was growing up, I was told Bible means basic instructions before leaving earth. And so I've always remembered that. We need the word of God. There's a story, and uh, you don't have to turn to it. I just want to share one verse from the story, but it's in Luke chapter 24, and it's after Jesus' crucifixion. And there's two men, the Bible says, that are walking down a seven-mile stretch of road from the city of Jerusalem to Emmaus. They were followers of Jesus, and because Jesus was crucified that weekend, the Bible says they were walking and their faces were downcast. They were sad. And then something amazing happens. Of course, this is Sunday late in the afternoon, and Jesus already rose from the tomb. They just didn't get the, the, the information yet. And Jesus shows up. He appears to them in the flesh, and he's walking with them, and he's talking with them, and yet somehow, whether supernaturally or or naturally, I don't know, but Jesus doesn't disclose his identity to them, so they don't know it's Jesus, and there's this incredible verse in the middle of that story, Luke 24, verse 27 says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Don't you know that had to be an incredible conversation? I mean, 
Seven miles is a long way to walk. And it says Jesus started with Moses, and he explained. Like, they were sad because Jesus died on the cross, and so Jesus goes all the way back to Moses. And I wonder if he didn't go back to that story that is recounted in John 3, where it says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And and it says, starting with Moses, Jesus walks them through the word of God, through all the prophets, and he explains why Jesus had to die. And here's what blows my mind about that story. These men, they had believed in Jesus. They had put their hope in the fact that Jesus was the Savior. But what they actually put their hope in was their personal interpretation of how Jesus was going to be the Savior. And so they were so committed to what they believed and what they wanted the Word to do that they didn't recognize the Word even when the living, breathing Word of God was standing right in front of them. And with that picture in mind, let me say, I think that's where a lot of Christians are in America today. That we do have the word of God tucked under our arm or we've got it sitting on the seat or maybe it's in the back seat of the car behind you or maybe yours is the one that's been on the bookshelf out there for months. If that's yours, if God doesn't do anything else today, I pray you have conviction to go find your Bible. (laughs) But a lot of Christians are, are that way. We espouse a belief. We say we believe in Jesus, and, but the problem is that the word of God that we have tucked under our arm doesn't align with the truth that's contained in it. In Psalms 119, David said this. He said, I've hidden your word in the backseat of my car so that I might not sin against God. <laughs> right? No, that is not what he said. Come on, what did he say? Read it with me. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the only way the word of God works in our life is when the word of God works into our life. And it gets on the inside of us. It's funny how many people will use the excuse that they have a lack of understanding as a reason for not opening the Bible. And I'll be the first to admit, there's a lot of places in Scripture that they're hard to understand. There's also many, many places in Scripture that a child can understand. The word of God says the unfolding of your word gives light to the eyes. It gives understanding to the simple. So Paul talked to a young pastor in the letter of 2 Timothy chapter 4 about what is most important. And I often read these verses as a somber reminder for my responsibility as your pastor. I want to read them to you out loud. Chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, the first verse says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Of all the things that Paul could have told a young pastor, He said, this is the charge. Timothy, preach the word. He said, preach it in season and out of season. That that doesn't mean that the church is seasonal. It means when it's popular and when it's not. When people like it and when they don't. How many of you know it's a lot easier to preach the message that is a message of encouragement than the one that is rebuke? Yeah. And now some of you are wondering, like, I think I know which one this one's going to (laughs) be. No, you don't. (laughs) This is not a setup. (laughs) I'm just saying, it's a lot easier to to preach people happy than it is to correct people, right? 
But Paul said it doesn't matter if it's encouragement, correction, or rebuke. Be faithful to preach the word and do it with patience, great patience, and careful instruction. And then he says this, and this is what I really need you to see. Verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. See, I I believe if Paul wrote this letter today, he wouldn't say a time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. I believe he would say the time has come. How many of you would agree that maybe we're living in that time now where people just don't want to put up with or tolerate sound doctrine? And just to illustrate this, I I, want to mention, maybe you've heard of this, maybe you know nothing of this, but uh, I want to just tell you about a movement that is happening in the Christian church in America. It's called progressive Christianity. There are churches that are defining themselves. In fact, I was talking with one of our leaders between services, and they they pulled up the website of a church in Lancaster County that, that is a progressive Christian church. And and I want you to know, I'm not picking on denominations or anything. We don't do that around here. This is not like, oh, the Baptist or the Pentecostals or the Methodists. Progressive Christianity is a, whole, is a whole different framework of theology. It's a whole different view of the Word of God. And to be quite honest with you, it's, it's an affront to the authority of God's Word. And, and so if you want to learn about progressive Christianity, you'll find quickly that they have eight points that define them. And I looked at the points, and one of them was, the first one, was the teachings of Jesus are one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life. Now, wow, of all the ways that you could have, uh, you know, political, correct, political correctness phrased that, they, they did it in a way that is almost palatable, but I think you're all wise enough to see through the statement to recognize what they're saying. That Jesus is just one of the ways that we can experience sacredness and oneness. Can I tell you what Jesus said about all the different ways? In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus uh, was, was, was very inclusive in saying anybody and everybody can come, but he was loving enough to show us exactly how to get there. He didn't say all roads or many roads lead to heaven. He was very clear in the word of God. And, and, and this idea, this progressive Christianity, we, we're, I'm just using one example. We see this all over in our culture. This amalgamation of all things that, I don't know if we get our theology, it kind of sounds like scripture, it kind of sounds like a Beatles song. It's like love, let's just, you know, that's all we need. One of their other eight values says, we seek community that is inclusive of all people, including but not limited to conventional Christians and questioning skeptics, believers and agnostics, women and men, those of all sexual orientations and gender identities, those of all classes and abilities. Now, again, when I, when I read that statement personally, I don't have a problem with saying everyone's welcome. My problem is with our definition of the word inclusive. Because when, when you say inclusive today, it doesn't mean everybody's welcome. Because can I just tell you, everybody is welcome in the church. 
But what they're saying by inclusive is it doesn't, it doesn't matter what your actions or activities are in your lifestyle. We affirm you here. We affirm your beliefs. And can I just tell you, church, if, if we don't have the truth of the word of God, we have nothing. And the Bible speaks authoritatively and clearly and exhaustively about sexuality and about sexual sin. And, and I'm not going to take my time this morning to, to talk about it. It would literally be a long series to just deal with sexuality. Maybe another time we will, but I just want to put on the screen a, a picture of, of 10 different sexual sins that the Bible speaks very clearly about. If you want to study these, you can, you can snap a photo of these. You can look at it later. You can watch it online. But, but these are all sins that the Bible speaks very clearly. And as you can see from the references, in multiple places, fornication, adultery, polygamy, rape, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, prostitution, Sexual immorality, that the word used in the Greek is pornea, and it's, it's kind of an all-encompassing word. Uh, it, it's kind of like saying garbage. Like garbage could be banana peels. It could be recyclables. It's, it's all in the can. It's where we get the word pornography. Ten, pagan sexual activity. So, I mean, the Bible speaks very clearly on, on these sins and, and many other sins. And so it becomes problematic to say, well, we just want to, in the name of love, in the name of grace, in the name of acceptance and, and journeying together, we're just going to affirm and be inclusive of all lifestyle choices. It, it didn't surprise me after reading some of the points to come across this one. One of the points of progressive Christianity says, we believe there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. Wow. Uh, the other church, I just looked at their website uh, between the services. They say, we don't take the Bible literally, but we do take it seriously. Can I tell you, that is not what we believe. This is the inspired word of God. And and. When it speaks authoritatively and clearly on issues in our life, we have to take the whole counsel of Scripture. We can't, we can't, we can't surf through Scripture like, like we're at the smorgasbord. You know, just, just pick, pick what I want, skip over what I don't want. So the reality is we're, we're living in a world right now, and, and the, the world is one side of it. The church is the other. And let me go there for just a minute. We're living in a reality in the church where we're just changing our interpretation of the word of God to fit in with the cultural narrative of the day. And, and let, me just, let me just say what you might already be feeling on my behalf. Issues like this are difficult to talk about. They're difficult to talk about because everybody has a story and everybody has a, a perspective. And, a, and the reality is I'm not just speaking for me when I say that. It was difficult for Paul the Apostle. In fact, I want to show you that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul deals with sexual sin in the church. And here's what you need to know. This is not just you know, a letter that he wrote to a random gathering of people. Paul knew these people. He had been in this church and 1 Corinthians, even though we call it 1 Corinthians, is not the first letter that he wrote. 
we don't know where the first letter is. And funny thing is, the second Corinthians is not the second letter. Uh, it's the fourth letter. We lost the third one somewhere, too. But we got the, the second and the fourth letter, and we call it first and second. And so Paul was there, and there was sexual sin that was happening in that church. And Paul gets word that the church is actually celebrating their acceptance of a young man who's living in sexual immorality. They're celebrating the acceptance of, of his lifestyle. And Paul writes back to them here in this chapter. And, and he says, what, what you're celebrating, not even the pagan people accept that. And what was happening in this instance is the man was sleeping with his father's wife. So he, he, he's having sex with his stepmom. And the church is being inclusive and loving, intolerable, and he's a part of the church. And Paul writes to them. You didn't know it was this clear in the scripture, did you? He writes to them and says, this, here's what he says in verse six. I'm just gonna read it. Your boasting is not good. They were boasting in how, how they had em embraced this. He said, it's not good. Go down to verse nine. He's gonna reference the letter that we don't have. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. Church, that's a really important distinction. Paul is not saying, when he says you disassociate from this guy, he's not saying don't have anything to do with people that are sinful or that have sin, sinful practices. He's not saying anybody that does anything sexually immoral have nothing to do with him. In fact, he says that's impossible. You would literally have to leave the world. And can I just remind all of us, God's plan for the church is not that we go up into a cabin in the woods and develop some kind of little sacred commune to where we have nothing to do with the world, like just keep all the bad stuff out and we're just gonna, you know, hold the fort until Jesus comes. That's not the plan of God. So Paul's clarifying something here. He says in the next verse, verse 11, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, do not even eat with such people. Wow. That's strong language. That's really strong language. And when you hold that up in contrast to, to the realities of, of many quote-unquote Christians today that would say that the, the, the Bible thing to do, the, the, the inclusive thing to do, is that we all just come in Jesus' name. And, and Paul's saying it's actually unloving. It's It's, it's unloving. In verse 5, he said this. He said, you should hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, Paul was saying, this, this, is, not, this is not a lost person. We're talking about somebody in the church. We're talking about a man who walks in with the Bible under his arm like you do and says, I believe in Jesus. He says, for you, for you to just ignore what's happening in his life is actually unloving. The most gracious thing you could do is to tell him, brother, that's wrong. You're wrong. And he said, turn him over to Satan. Why? So that his flesh can be destroyed so that his soul can be saved. Wow. And then he, and then he follows with this. And, and here's, 
Here's the tension I'm describing that me and maybe you in conversations and all of us in the American culture are are feeling. Here's the tension. He says in verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Which, by the way, that's rhetorical. The answer is yes. You know, I know a lot of us quote that verse in Matthew 7 that says, judge not lest you be not judged, but, but here's, a, here's another verse for you. We are called to judge one another. It's called accountability. It's not, it's not a religious spirit. It's not criticism. It's, it's accountability. He says, are we not to judge those inside? And then he says in verse 13, God will judge those outside. As for you, expel the wicked person from among you. So here's, here's the tension. On one hand, Paul's talking about how do we deal with sexual immorality among Christians? And he says, deal with it. The fact that you haven't dealt with it is not good. By now, you should have handed him over to Satan. In other words, you should have, you should have told him you're not allowed to live that lifestyle and, and, and feign spirituality. You're not allowed to just continue doing it. You need to have spiritual discipline in your life for the saving of your soul. And then in the same conversation, Paul says, I'm not talking about lost people, though. I'm not going to judge lost people. Now, now fast forward from the first century to the 21st century, and, and I get to talk about this topic to, to a mixed audience to where we expect lost people to come to church on Sunday. In fact, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you're getting to, to dissect some of the more difficult scriptures for our day and age with us today. I'm, I'm broadcasting live on Facebook. There's lots of people that don't know Jesus that, that might see this or hear this, and, and yet Paul says, with Christians, I deal with it this way. With lost people, I'm going to deal with it this way. So I don't even know that makes it really difficult for us to have those conversations and because maybe maybe the grace would lead us into a private conversation that would sound completely different than, than a public proclamation in a gathering of believers. The question, though, the question remains, how do we deal with sin when we're confronted with it? Because we are being confronted with it. And I think the picture, a beautiful picture of how to do this best is found in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, the Bible says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Isaiah says. He was high and exalted. He was seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In that moment, Isaiah had a a revelation of a holy God. And I think the way that he responds in that moment is a great model for how we should respond when we have a revelation of the Holy Scriptures. And when we have a revelation of the presence of a holy God in our life. And, and, and I think probably Isaiah could have made a strong argument for being the most spiritual person in the nation at the time. He was the one person that God chose to be his voice, to speak on his behalf. And yet, when Isaiah had a revelation of a holy God, in verse 5, here's his response. He says, woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. You know what the first response ought to be when we encounter and, and confront 
sin that is in opposition to the authoritative word of God, it ought to be humility. It ought to be, just like Isaiah, humility. Before we try to armor up and go, ooh, that's a good verse, I'm telling somebody that. No, no, when the word of God is laid open before us, our spirits are laid bare before the word, and our first response ought to be humility. Woe is me, I'm a sinner. We gotta deal with the log issue. I'm a sinner. In my, I'm unclean. I'm ruined, he says. And then here's the second response. In verse eight, it says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. So the first response is humility, and the second response is submission. Submission of your life. That's, that ought to be the way we respond to the word of God when we come into a place of confrontation with, with culture and scripture or our personal preference or, or our desires and the word of God. How do we respond in that moment? Because the truth is, there's a lot of scripture that is very countercultural today. And it didn't, it didn't always used to be like that. I mean, some of you are old enough to remember times in, in America where pretty much biblical morality ruled the day, right? I mean, I'm not saying like we just invented sin in the last 50 years, but, but some of you remember what it was like to go to public school and begin the day reading scripture or to pray. And, and it, whether it was in the church house or the White House, biblical morality was pretty much the, the, the standard for the culture. That, that's not the truth anymore. That's not the truth anymore. And, and here, here's my heart. I really believe that maybe it would help us. Maybe we would actually be able to be more intentional about, about the purpose for which God has placed us on the earth in this generation if we would just go ahead and acknowledge the reality that, that we do live in a post-Christian America. And I know that might sound like a defeatist mentality. I'm not saying we, we throw, in the town, uh, throw in the towel on, you know, on being an influence in any way, but what I'm saying is we need to deal with the reality that our culture is at an impasse with the authority of God's word. And the more we try to retrofit our faith to fit into culture, the weaker and more watered down our faith becomes. I mentioned last week in the message that Christianity, of all the world religions, Christianity is the only major world religion that has never occupied the same seat of influence geographically. Where... Christianity started in Jerusalem, and then it moved to Rome, and then it advanced and it spread across Europe, and, and then the, the, the seat of the gospel moved across the seas to America, but when you look at where revival's happening now in the world, it's, it's Latin America, it's Africa, it's Asia, and, and what we see is that the gospel is not confined to any one culture. The gospel can fit into any and every culture, and the reason is because the kingdom of God is higher than the kingdoms of this world. It's higher. When we, when we bring the gospel into our community, we're actually bringing the culture of heaven to earth. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to waste my time 
and forfeit my God-given assignment in this generation by fighting an unchristian culture about being unchristian. Getting, getting into arguments with unsaved people about making unsaved choices. Like, lost people are lost. Sinners sin. You know, it's interesting to think Jesus, he never confronted the Roman Empire. And yet the Roman Empire is gone, and the kingdom of God is still advancing today. Now, what I'm not saying is that you shouldn't, you know, be civically responsible. I'm not saying you shouldn't be engaged. If God gives you a voice, if God gives you an influence, by all means, we ought to use that as much as we can. But, but what I am saying, what I'm trying to get us to, to come to the place of understanding is that historically speaking, when the kingdom of God, when the people of God did not have freedom, and historically speaking, when the kingdom of God did not have cultural influence, we still always advance the kingdom. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. The gospel has not expounded where it was socially accepted it has advanced where it's been persecuted. And so I just think it would serve us well to get past the place of any memory of, of an American ideology, regardless of what our money says. We don't live in a nation that trusts God. We don't live in a nation that's founding laws on the authority of God's word. And I think this month is just an example. It's just a prime example as, as our nation celebrates all things pride month. I don't know when pride became something we celebrate. But it's just where we live today. It's the world we're in. And the reality is, friends, when you meet Jesus, everything's different. Everything becomes different. He begins to change you from the inside out. You find out, it's not, not because you all of a sudden have a spirit of rebellion or opposition, certainly not a spirit that lacks love, but you just find yourself in, in the crosshairs of culture. You find yourself swimming upstream, climbing uphill, cutting against the grain. Why? Not because of, of, of a rebellious attitude or of a religious spirit looking down a long nose at other people and thinking they're better. It's the fact that the kingdom of God has come in your heart and your life, and the cultures of this world are contrary to the kingdom of God. So like it or not, you're going to find yourself at a place of opposition. So what does it really mean for us? to follow Jesus faithfully in America today. I, I, I think it would give clarity to understand that when we talk about the world from Scripture, there, there's several different words that we use. Well, we use one word, world. But it means several different things. For, for example, the world means the planet. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord. He made heaven and earth. So God created the world. But the Bible says in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, I just want to tell you, Jesus did not come from heaven to die on a cross to save the whales. 
or to save the trees. So when the Bible says God so loved the world, he's not talking about the planet. He's talking about people. Same word in our language, different meaning. But John, in chapter 3, said God so loved the world, and then later he wrote 1 John, chapter 2, and he said, do not love the world. Doesn't that sound confusing? Same author. He said, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. That word world is cosmos. It means world systems. And we use that all the time. You know, we might talk about the world of sports or things that are happening in the financial world. We're not talking about different planets. We're talking about invisible systems of operation, things that happen in the sports world or in the financial arena. And that's what he's saying here, that there is an actual world system that is opposing Christ and his mission on the earth. And can I just tell you, church, there is an authority in this world system, and it's the devil. Adam forfeited that authority. God gave him dominion over the whole earth in Genesis 1, and he forfeited that authority over to the enemy. That's why Jesus even said, the prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold on me. He called Satan the prince of this world, of this world system. So understand the wording here that we should be good stewards of the planet. It's the only one we've got. And we should love people for whom Christ died. But it's also true that we should reject the world system that stands in opposition to the truth. We're called. Can I just remind you, church, we have an enemy, a real enemy. Peter said it like this. He said, be sober-minded, be vigilant, 1 Peter 5, 8. For the devil, your adversary, roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And I think sometimes we just, we, we just get so used to what's here. It's kind of like you can't smell the stink in your own house. You know what I'm saying? Like you just live there. And we can forget that we're not just dealing with headlines in public opinion, we're dealing with a world system that is in absolute war against the word of God and the authority of God in the earth. And I just want to challenge you to con just consider how you view your role here in the earth. You could equate it to two different vessels, one being the church as a cruise ship and the other being the church as a battleship. Now, if you're boarding a cruise ship, you're going to ask a different set of questions than you do if you're getting on a battleship. For example, if you're getting on a cruise ship, you might want to know. And some people, they view church this way. They would ask similar questions. Do I like the music they play in the ballroom? Do I like the captain and the crew? Is he funny? Not today. Is the service good? Am I well fed? Are my needs met promptly? Is the cruise pleasant? Am I comfortable? Do I want to cruise with them again? But if you're getting on a battleship, 
The questions might look like this. Is this ship on a clear and noble mission? Does the captain submit to a higher authority? Are the crew members equipped to succeed? Are they able to contribute in a significant way? Are they going to be honored for their efforts? These are the kind of questions that that we would ask if we were stepping onto a battleship. And can I tell you, church, we're not called to be a clubhouse. We're called to be a lighthouse. We have a purpose, and we have to reframe the way we see our place in our generation. We should remember that this world that we live in, not the planet, not the people. I'm talking about the world system that we are living in that is around us was dangerous enough that Jesus came and died to rescue us from it. I know that might sound like shock talk, but Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. That that phrase, evil age, the Greek word is the same, cosmos, from this world system. That's why he came, to deliver us from it, according to the will of God, our Father. James, the brother of Jesus, said this in chapter 4 and verse 4 of his letter. He said, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Friends, it's very clear. The word calls us to live different from this world system. Peter called us a peculiar people. I like that phrase. So how do we do it? How many of you have heard the phrase before, in it, not of it? We're in the world, but we're not of the world. I've heard that all my life. People say, well, we're in the world, we're not of the world. In John chapter 17, Jesus actually prays for us. He prays for his followers. And that's where we get that phrase, in it, not of it. I was looking at that phrase this week, and I I realized something, that we typically put the emphasis on the wrong part of the statement. When we say, in it, not of it, it's almost like the, the, the emphasis is, well, we're not of it. You know, like, well, we're in this world, unfortunately, but at least we don't have to be of it. And that's kind of how I've heard it. But when you read what Jesus said in John chapter 17, the emphasis of his statement was entirely different. Look at it with me in verse 14. Jesus said, I have given them your word. He's talking to the Father. He's praying for the church. And the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So look, Jesus is not praying that God would get us out of this mess. Jesus is not praying that God would get us out of all of the, the confusion and, and the sin and the, the, the lostness of our society. In verse 17, he starts out saying, they're not 
of the world. But in verse 18, he ends by saying, but I'm sending them into this world. So maybe we ought to invert the phrase. Instead of saying we're in it, not of it, we should change it to say we're not of, but sent in. Like, yeah, there's a difference. We're, We're not of it, but we are sent in. Can I remind this church that God's plan for us in our generation is not to disassociate from a world that is lost and going to hell. God's plan is for us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to bring the message of truth and hope to a lost and dying world. But here's the reality, and this is what I've felt, and I know you're feeling it, and if you've got children growing up in school, I know you're feeling it. The reality is when you take that stand, you find there is a strong current coming against you that this is an uphill climb. You're paddling upstream. That, that, the world, that, that it's gonna, you know, it's harder for your kids to be a Christian than it was for you. It's harder for you than it was for your parents. Why? Because our culture is shifting. So what do we do? And, and I just want, I want to encourage you with something that Jesus said. And maybe, maybe we should read this more often than we do, but it's pretty clarifying. In John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind, hated me first. Can I just tell you, you're never going to be a better Christian than Jesus, okay? Like, that's not happening. So if we ride on the opinions of people, we're going to be disappointed. Jesus said, this world, they hated me first. So how do we respond to a world that hates the Jesus in you? Hates you. How, how do you live in that world? How do you respond to that? I think there's three things, and I'm just going to mention them to you quickly as, as the worship team comes Number one, rejoice. Say rejoice. Yeah, rejoice. That's exactly what Jesus said to do. Because just as Jesus, with all of his love for the last and the lost and the least in society, for all of his compassion, for all of his selflessness, the reality is his life was a rebuke of the cosmos of his time. His life was a rebuke. And Jesus, the the best Christian, if we can say it that way, that ever lived, was killed for his convictions. If they hated me, if they hate you, they hated me first. But you know what Jesus said to do? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, he said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice! And be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you're in good company. You're not the first to be persecuted for your convictions. You're not the first to be unpopular for your faith. Rejoice. Secondly, though, he's, you should remove. How, how do we deal with a world that hates the Jesus in you? Remove yourself. The Bible warns us over and over again about being taken in 
by the evil of our cosmos. That's why Jesus called Satan the father of lies. How many of you know the the most convincing lie is a half-truth? That's why when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he actually quoted scripture to him. Like, yeah, if you didn't know, the devil knows the Bible, knows it better than you. He knows the word of God. And, and, and a lot of people who, who profess to have a faith in this book right here are allowing themselves to be moved in their convictions by a world system that wants to rewrite a more palatable and socially acceptable gospel. You got to remove yourself from that. Paul said, hey, if that's a person that's professing Christ and they're, and they're living, uh, uh, don't even sit at the table with that person. Make a clean break from the evils of the world. Come out from among them, 2 Corinthians says, and be separate. Thirdly, rejoin. So rejoice in the persecution. Remove yourself if you're tempted to, to sway in your convictions by people that are wanting to twist the gospel. But third, rejoin. The reality is Jesus did not live his life in isolation from sinful people. Mark chapter 2 says he, he was always with tax collectors and sinners. One of the things that the religious folks hated the most about Jesus was who he hung out with. They didn't kill him for who he loved. He loved everybody. They killed him for who he liked. They were bothered. The fact that Jesus could embrace lost people. And we need to remember that we're not called to to disassociate from this world. But the relationship should be for a redemptive purpose. To love people into truth. I asked the worship team to come back up here because I want them to just lead us in a in a line that we sang earlier. I, I want this to just be a, a response of surrender. If you can go there, but before before we sing, I, I want to take you where I really feel like the Holy Spirit took me. I, I know that dealing with the cultural issues that you deal with in your workplace or in your school or in your home with your family, it's difficult. I'll be the first to admit, there are some scriptures that are hard to wrestle to the ground. But I want to give you a verse of scripture. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, he said, whoever is ashamed of me In my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. Just go back to the first part of that verse again. Whoever is ashamed of me. Here's the question I want to ask you. And I'm talking to Bible-believing Christians today. Are you ashamed of the Word of God? Are you you ashamed of your convictions? Because it's so easy for us to, in the name of love or grace, 
to avoid confrontation. And I'm not looking for confrontation, but I'm asking you to search your heart the way I'm searching mine. And ask yourself, am I ashamed of the Word of God? Am I ashamed of what it says? Or do I really believe in my heart of hearts that God's plan from the beginning is the best plan for our lives? On all points, God's plan is the best plan. So I want to ask if you would stand with me all over this room. And with that question in your heart, I hope you'll say with me, God, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of your word. And I'm not going to let discomfort or even hatred cause me to be ashamed of your word. I believe in the full counsel of God's word. I believe your word is right and it's good and it brings light to the eyes and it makes wise the simple. So God, I submit. I, I humble myself and I submit my whole life. If you can pray that, would you just let these words be your prayer? Let's just respond to the Lord today.